Hear now the word of God. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. But Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manassan of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's ask him to do that. Lord, would you use these warnings that Paul receives this morning to prepare us, to prepare our own hearts? Would you make us willing to be imprisoned and even die for the sake of the gospel? Would you give us the love that only comes from you and from your spirit? We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, we saw the Apostle Paul's tearful goodbye to the leaders in Ephesus. We saw uh, how it was that he could leave this church. And the answer was he could only leave it because he was leaving this church in the hands of God. He knew it was not even really his church. It was God's church. And so he's able to board the ship, and he's able to leave with confidence, without looking back. So because God has been faithful to them through Paul before, we're talking about the Ephesians, uh, God will be faithful to them again in numerous other ways that don't include Paul, necessarily. But ultimately, Paul's answer is, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. And we saw that God and his word are the strength of the church, not the force of any one man's personality. And so they follow Paul to the ship filled with sorrow because they know they will never see his face again. And they see Paul off. And so Paul leaves on this ship. He uh, passes a place called Kos and then he stops in Rhodes. 
Now, maybe the name Rhodes rings a bell for you. Uh, Rhodes is most famous for the Colossus of Rhodes. If you've ever seen paintings, this is not accurate at all, by the way. In the paintings, the Colossus of Rhodes is pictured as this massive figure who has one foot on each side of the harbor in Rhodes. And it just stretches up into the sky. And that's not historical at all. The Colossus of Rhodes was actually just a big statue of the sun god Helios and the Statue of Liberty. It was actually about the size of the Statue of Liberty today. Uh, you guys know my wife is, uh, was for the last couple days in New York City with our daughter on a school trip. And she sent me a photo of herself in front of the Statue of Liberty. And it boggles my mind, the size of it, when they are standing there at the foot of it on Liberty Island. And to think that uh, the Statue of the Colossus of Rhodes was that tall and stood on the shores in Rhodes. And it stood for more than 50 years, but it was destroyed by an earthquake in 226 B.C. And then it was 800 years years before the Colossus of Rhodes was actually removed. So for 800 years, the carcass of this massive statue just lay on the ground. An interesting piece of history, Muslim invaders came and they melted the statue down. And so that's why the Colossus of Rhodes isn't there today. But when Paul would have gone through the harbor at Rhodes, surely he could have seen the remains, the crumbled remains, even then, 200 years later, of the Colossus of Rhodes. And so the journey continues on from Rhodes until the ship is away from Greece and actually lands in Syria and Tyre. Now, I assume you don't have... I assume you don't have the geography of the Middle East memorized. I assume you don't have the Mediterranean's uh, typography memorized. But Tyre is very close to Palestine. When they arrive in Tyre, they are really getting close to the finish line here. And so he's not far from his destination. And in our passage, what Paul does is he stops in Tyre and then he stops in Caesarea And in each place, Paul has an encounter with believers where they warn him not to go any further. And when this happens, it sort of raises this thorny question. What do we do when we have a clear word from God, but we disagree on how it's supposed to be carried out? Uh, If you've been in the church any amount of time, you've probably seen times where there were disagreements about how to do what God has told us to do. There's no disagreement about what God has said, but the disagreement is, how do we carry this out? What are the practical logistics of doing what God says? Well, that's what happens today in the passage. Christians of goodwill and good faith receive warnings from the Spirit, and yet they're not united on how to respond to those warnings. And so this morning, I want us to look at the warnings Paul receives, because each of them raises a challenge for us to consider. It raises a challenge in the text. It raises a challenge about how do we read the Bible when there are difficult things going on. And so our outline is very straightforward. A first warning, a second warning, and then a final resolution. That's the outline. Um, The first warning comes to Paul while he is in Tyre. He's in Tyre. He's with Luke. He's there for seven days. Their ship is parked in the harbor. I think sometimes we think of of ships, and we think, well, this must have been a passenger ship, and maybe there's a commercial ship that carries goods and, and things like that. But, but the reality is, 
it was ships that were made for goods, and they would squeeze you in wherever they could if there was room for you. That's sort of the way it was like to travel back then. And so when they get to the harbor, it doesn't matter if it's inconvenient for them or not. They stop for seven days. What are they doing in those seven days? Well, the ship crew is unloading the load, and then they're putting new things on, and then they're going to take off again. So while Luke and Paul are paused, they find these Christians in the city. And Luke gets right to the point immediately. He says, through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Now, here is the question that we have to wrestle with. The text says something very tricky here. It says, through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And here's the rub. We also know from the text that the Spirit told Paul to go to Jerusalem. In Acts 19.21, Luke tells us that Paul resolved in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. Right? He resolves to go to Jerusalem, but Luke says he did it in the Spirit. And then in Acts 20, verses 22 to 24, Paul says, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. So you see, why is he going to Jerusalem? Because the Spirit has constrained him. Because he has resolved in the Spirit to do this. In other words, this isn't Paul venturing out on his own. This isn't Paul following his own human ideas about how to do ministry. This is Paul saying, the Spirit is leading me to Jerusalem. And so the way Luke phrases it here, this is the apparent problem. The way Luke phrases this here, the believer's entire seem to be told by God that Paul shouldn't go to Jerusalem. And this presents the, the thorny question to us. Did the Spirit say one thing to Paul and another thing to the Tyrian Christians? Did the Spirit drive Paul to Jerusalem only to later tell him not to go? Well, Luke doesn't make it easy for us, certainly in the clarity of his words. And I think this is an opportunity to, for us as Christians to consider the practice of harmonization. I, I just talked about this this last week uh, at, at Bellhaven. But um, harmonization is the practice of taking two separate reports and seeing how they fit together. So, for example, we harmonize every time that we take the Gospels and we ask the question, how do these fit together? And we do so under the assumption that they're both truthful. So if these things are both telling the truth... How do we make them fit together? How do we make a bigger, fuller picture? Uh, harmonization happens every time the police hear statements from two different witnesses. Right? He hears from one, they hear from one person, then they hear from another person, then they take those two statements and they put them together. And if they're both truthful, they'll get a full picture of what's going on. And so harmonization is something we do all the time. Uh, my wife has been gone for a few days traveling and you know, when two children both say they've been wronged, you have to sort of take their two little tiny eyewitness perspectives and sort of put them together and see if you can come up with the real version of what took place. And so because Paul tell, Luke tells us that Paul has heard from the Spirit, we've got a problem, right? Because the people are warning him not to go. And so oftentimes we will find things in Scripture, they seem to contradict each other. And yet, as people who know that God speaks truly, we know that God speaks consistently, we know there must be an answer. Let's think through logical possibilities. Let's think through the possibilities of what might be going on here. How might you solve this problem? 
One possibility is maybe God wanted Paul to go to Jerusalem and then changed his mind. Right? That's a logical possibility. Uh, this seems unlikely, though, since this is not the normal way God has guided Paul before. And I think it's also unlikely, considering that in chapter 21, verse 14, the believers accept that it's God's will for Paul to go to Jerusalem. So they take Paul's own resolution to go to Jerusalem as proof that they were misunderstanding. We'll get to what I think is going on there in a moment. Another logical possibility is maybe God is telling Paul one thing and he's telling the believers entire another thing. Is that possible? It's problematic, I think, because God does not have a forked tongue. He doesn't speak one way to one person and another way to another person. He is thoroughly consistent and truthful when he speaks. Um, In addition to this, I think Scripture excludes this possibility. In 1 Corinthians 14.33, he tells us that our God is not a God of confusion. So if it's not in God's character to tell two different people the same, uh, different things, if it's not possible that God has changed his mind, maybe there's another possibility. This is one that actually is popular in evangelicalism today, even if you've never heard it before. Is it possible that these believers are making a false prophecy? Is that possible? Are the people, have the people entire misheard or misunderstood? There are some evangelicals who believe that this, this happens because there's this belief that in the New Testament era, there's a new type of prophecy. In the Old Testament, a prophet would be stoned if he ever made a wrong prophecy. The standard in the Old Testament was incredibly high. If you made a prophecy and it did not come true and you said, thus saith the Lord, and it didn't happen, you would be killed. And yet in the New Testament, there are some who believe that false prophecies are a normal part of the church now. Uh, I could mention a few names I won't mention, but if you ask me afterwards, I'll tell you. The names of different evangelical leaders who do believe this sort of thing, they'll point to moments like this. And they'll say, look, see, Christians can make false prophecies, and yet somehow it's still a prophecy. It's very common among charismatic churches where uh, folks will say things like, God told me that you should do this. God told me that you should do that. In places where that sort of way of speaking is common, folks need to have some way of reckoning with the fact that sometimes you'll tell people that, and then the thing that you say won't happen. And yet they still want to say that it was really prophecy. Um, They need some way of reckoning with the fact that they believe God is speaking and yet the thing that they spoke didn't take place. Uh, To me, this is very personal. It's not hypothetical or abstract. I have a very close family member uh, whose marriage was on the rocks and they were going to a charismatic church and they, I actually heard the recording of this so-called prophet and He spoke to this person and said, your marriage is going to be restored. You're going to be stronger than ever. You're actually going to be a speaker who goes to conferences and you're going to build up other people whose marriages have been in trouble and you are going to be a stronger person in the faith for it. And the reality is it's been almost two decades and nothing even remotely like that came true. How do you reckon with someone who stands before you and says, thus saith the Lord, and then it doesn't happen. 
Some people, for them, the solution is not to say, hey, we should stop telling people that God has spoken to us if he hasn't said it in the Bible. The solution is maybe there's a such thing as false prophecy that comes from God. And I think that's a deeply troubling conclusion. I think Luke excludes this as a possibility, mainly because in the passage, in the text, he says, through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Right? When the Spirit speaks, he speaks with the full authority of God because he is God. The notion of there being a type of prophecy that can end up being wrong is just simply not an option. There are no examples of it in the Bible. And to be honest, this answer creates more problems than it solves. And as I'm about to show you, I don't think that's the only way you have to understand a passage like this. So the other possibility, and it's the one that just full transparency, this is what I think. It's the one that I think Christians who believe in the inerrancy and the infallibility of Scripture, I think this is the only option that is really a valid option. So I believe this, and I'm going to show you others do too. The Spirit showed these believers what would happen to Paul, just like he showed Agabus, just like he showed uh, the Christians in, show, he, he showed Paul when he was in Ephesus. The believers are drawing their own conclusion from God's revelation of what would happen to Paul. So they're being shown by God what was going to happen to Paul, and yet they're drawing their own uninspired conclusion from it. So God is showing them Paul's going to be arrested. He's going to be bound. He's going to be delivered to the Gentiles. And they see this, they hear it, they learn this, and they conclude by it that they should warn him not to go. That's what I believe is happening here. And so, for example, if you look ahead just a little bit, and we're going to get back to Agabus in a moment, but if you look at the prophecy that Agabus actually gives, all Agabus is really told is this will happen to Paul. He's told objectively what's going to happen to Paul. Um, This is what he's been told by the Spirit. And then if you remember, Paul says in chapter 20, verse 23, the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction awaits me. So Paul gives this summary of what he keeps hearing every time he goes to a city. And he says, every time I go to a city, people tell me, God tells me that imprisonment awaits me and suffering awaits me. And so I believe that God is continuing that trend He's continuing to do what what Paul has already said. And so the Spirit is using these Tyrian Christians to warn Paul that imprisonment and suffering is ahead for him. And that is the pattern of warning Paul has consistently gotten all the way along. There is danger ahead. You must be ready. But the Christians of Tyre draw the wrong conclusion from the prophecy. Well, then you shouldn't go at all. The prophecy is inspired, the application is not. That's Calvin's view of this passage. Try to keep my quotations from Calvin to a minimum. Uh, A while ago, I think I slipped three Calvin quotes into one sermon, so I'm really trying to rein it in. But I, I want you to hear this from Calvin, so you know this is not just some innovation on my part, at least. This is what Calvin says about this passage. He says, The Lord showed these brethren of whom Luke makes mention what should come to pass. Yet nevertheless, they know not what is right 
and what Paul's calling requires because the measure of their gift does not reach so far. So they have a gift. It's telling them suffering's ahead, imprisonment's ahead. But that doesn't mean that their application is inspired. So in other words, there's more going on here than Luke lets on. But Luke sort of simplifies the warning so he can keep the narrative going. Now, is this a perfect solution? I, I'm, I'm not so sure. I, I think it is the best solution there is, though. And, and sometimes when we read the Bible, we find ourselves in a position where we have to let the clearer passages interpret those that are less clear. And I think that's what's the case here. So Paul's seven days with the Tyrian Christians comes to an end. And so they all kneel on the beach as Paul prepares to leave and they pray together. He's only known these Christians for seven days, but this is his family. They are those that share the spirit. They're closer than brothers and sisters. You know, one of the things that uh, to me was so sweet about having sweet rest here, uh, just among, just other than having their just presence here, uh, was the fact that here we have uh, Christians from all these different backgrounds, all these different ethnic groups, and yet here we are, we're singing the same songs, we're worshiping the same God, we're reading from the same Bible, we're praying the same prayers together. It's this opportunity for us to remember that we may look vastly different from one another, and yet we are closer to other believers than we are to our own family. We need to constantly be reminded of that. And that's what happens with Paul here. He's known them seven days, and they're closer than family. And here Paul is. He's with his family. He's kneeling on the beach. And they cry out to God together as one. And then finally Luke says, we went on board the ship and they returned home. And we'll talk about this more in the third point. But look what the Spirit is, is doing here. He is using these warnings to drive Paul to his knees in prayer because he needs to be prepared for what lies ahead. He uses this warning to prepare Paul. That's what the first warning is. Now, the second warning comes in verses 11 and 12. Having boarded the ship and departed from Tyre, they arrive in Caesarea, which is very close to Jerusalem now. You can, Jerusalem can almost smell Caesarea's breath. They are that close to Jerusalem. And when they get to Caesarea, they stay at the home of Philip and they call him Philip the Evangelist. And then Luke says one other thing. He says, who was one of the seven? Now, I don't know if you remember what it means for Luke to be one of the seven. But if you were to, in your mind, go back a few months in our own sermon series to Acts chapter 6. To that moment when God created the diaconate of the church. He put the deacons in place to serve so that the elders of the church could be given to the word and prayer and not tied up in financial stuff and all sorts of day-to-day operations of a church. He says the church needs to be spared this. The elders need to be able to deal with the spiritual issues of the church, not the practical day-to-day operations. And so he puts these seven deacons in place. And if you look at the names in the passage, one of those first seven deacons, one of the original seven deacons is none other than Philip. So here they are meeting one of the original deacons of the church, and he is doing exactly what deacons do. He shows hospitality to Paul and Luke and whoever's with them. It's probably been 20 years now since he was 
ordained as a deacon. And now here Philip is. He's traveled outside of Jerusalem. He's gone north. A lot of things in his life have changed. And yet one thing hasn't changed. He's still sharing the gospel. He's still evangelizing. He's still showing hospitality. He's even raised up four daughters who are all believers. The passage says they're prophetesses. Remember from Joel chapter 2. That promise was made that God would pour out his spirit on Israel's sons and daughters as well. And that came true in Acts chapter 2. So they've been in Caesarea for a few days and this fellow Agabus comes along. And we have met Agabus before, just like we've met Philip before in Acts chapter 6. Well, we met Agabus in Acts chapter 11. Agabus came and he made a prophecy. He said there would be a famine in the land. And when that happened, the Christians took action immediately and they responded to that prophecy. So now here Agabus is once again, and he has come because he has another word from God that Paul needs to hear. And I want to read you the contents of the prophecy from verse 11. And coming to us, Agabus took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands And said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So so Agabus comes and he comes to objectively tell Paul, this is what is going to happen if you go to Jerusalem. And we'll see this in the coming weeks. We're going to see how Paul is received in Jerusalem. We're going to see the hero's welcome that he gets. When he arrives in Jerusalem, and I am being sarcastic there, um, Paul is delivered over to the secular authorities, and he does end up being taken away in chains. And verse 12 is a point of controversy because they all hear the same prophecy, right? They all hear the same message. This is going to happen if you go to Jerusalem. And yet what happens? Vastly different conclusions, Very different conclusions, opposite conclusions, in fact. Because, see, for the second time in our reading, there is disagreement. What do we do with the facts that God has revealed? For Luke, and it sounds like others in the passage, Agabus's words can only mean one thing you should run. You should avoid suffering. You should avoid imprisonment. You know, you can almost. You can almost imagine their, their argument, and it's not a terrible argument. Paul, you're more useless, you're more useful to the cause of Christ out here, traveling, planning churches, doing all that you're doing. You're more useful to us out here than you would be locked up or dead. What good are you if you're dead to us? And yet Paul sees this prophecy and he says, God is warning me repeatedly not to steer me away from my calling, but to make me ready. You see those very different conclusions here. What do you do with this information? If you go to Jerusalem, you're going to die. One person says, then run. And one person says, that means I'm supposed to go. Well, that's the second warning in the passage. Now, twice in the passage, we've seen these warnings from God and we've seen the church profoundly disagree about what to do with these prophecies. But in the end, Paul responds to the love and the care and the concern of his fellow Christians with a third point this morning, which is a final resolution. A final resolution. He's he's heard the warnings. 
He's heard them over and over again. He's, he's heard probably, if you're doing a count, he's probably heard four or five prophecies at least this, so far between Ephesus and Caesarea now. He's seen so many Christians that believe it is his duty to run from trouble. And so what Paul does is he, in essence, responds to the warnings with what I'm calling resolution. And I want you to see this. The conclusion of these believers that, they, that he should run takes a few things for granted. There are some assumptions baked into their statement that Paul should run. For example, it assumes self-preservation is paramount. It assumes that Paul surviving and living is the most important thing. It assumes it. It doesn't even question it. Another thing that it assumes is that living to fight another day is always the way that God preserves his church. That's an assumption that he makes. It assumes that that's what God wants for Paul. They assume that God wants Paul to live. They assume that God doesn't want Paul to be arrested. And it misses the very real truth that when Jesus bids us come, oftentimes he bids us come and die. All right, when when Christians are in danger, we're not required to run headlong into it. In fact, that was a problem in the early church. There were Christians who would actually run into trouble. They would actually run into situations where the Roman authorities would kill them and murder them. And at one point, uh, there were so many Christians just voluntarily handing themselves over to the Roman authorities that at one point, there's this famous story of a Roman governor who says, you can throw yourself off of all of these cliffs and kill yourself if that's what you want to do, but I'm not going to keep putting you to death. And you see sort of Christians just sort of morosely walk away because they think that they think martyrdom is their duty. They think it's something they should run into. And Paul shows us here this morning that maybe we're not required to run headlong into it, but maybe it is the fact that suffering and death might be God's will for us. And maybe we don't think that very often. Maybe we assume that comfort and long life is exactly what God has for us. And yet Paul shows us that's not necessarily a correct assumption. See, Paul's been experiencing temptation all the way. Ever since he resolved to go to Jerusalem, he has been under the temptation to avoid death and avoid trouble and find some comfort. And I might suggest this is not a new temptation. This temptation, you can see it in the life of Jesus, right? Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. And one of the temptations that Jesus, Jesus experienced in the, tem, in, the, in the wilderness was Satan comes to him and says, if you bow down to me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world. All right, the temptation Jesus faces is to have a kingdom without a cross. I can have all of this and I don't have to suffer. I can have an easy life. I don't have to die and I can inherit all the kingdoms of this world. That is a temptation. And I think as Christians, we're often tempted to think maybe we can do what God calls us to do and we can avoid suffering. Maybe I can have it all. I know that temptation very, very well. I feel it's Paul all the time. But in essence, Paul's response is, I'm ready to be imprisoned and I'm ready to die. I'm not better than my Lord. And so Paul undercuts their assumptions. He undercuts their assumption that it is imperative that he go on 
as a free man. His response is to say, God does not always will for us to escape trouble. These repeated warnings that he's heard over and over again, they end up being one of the means of preparation that God uses in Paul's life. Because Paul, as we've seen in the past, Paul uh, has, is somebody who's not made of stone. We have to get out of our head this idea that Paul is some sort of monolithic figure who's like a titan or that colossus of Rhodes as if he just stands there unmoving. And all of us are sort of at his feet. Now that's not, that's not Paul at all. Paul is not some unfeeling stoic. Um, there are times when he is brought to tears. And there are times when Paul feels deeply discouraged. And, there, and we saw this already. There are times when God has to come to him and say, do not be afraid. Why does he do that? Because he's tempted to be afraid. And each and every time that Paul is struck by these warnings, his response is firm resolution. Listen to what he, he responds with. After being warned time and again, he says, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart. First of all, before we go any further, I'm just, I'm amazed at the vulnerability that Paul shows here. You know, the only person who can break your heart is somebody that you love. I have never had my heart broken by an internet troll or a, a school ground bully. They don't, they don't break your heart. They might tick you off. They might ruin your day and make you mad. But they can't break your heart. The only people who have ever broken my heart are people that I love. People that I have given the power to hurt me and break me. And Paul has loved these people and that has made him vulnerable. He has opened his life. He has opened his soul to them. And now they're breaking his heart. How are they breaking his heart? Because he's resolved, but their testing is resolved. They're making... The, the hardest, strongest case they can that he should not go through with this. They are making this a very difficult decision. And yet in the end, he's resolved. He's ready for what is ahead. And he says so. I am ready. And this is not explicitly said in the text, but I, I hope you'll hear me out for a moment. I, I believe that Paul could not have said this in the last chapter. He was prepared to go to Jerusalem, but then all the way, every stop along the way, God is warning him over and over again. And in these warnings, God has literally been driving Paul to his knees in prayer with God's people. And each time the warning happened, they prayed. And Paul became stronger. And each time that he was warned, he became more resolved. So that by chapter 21, verse 13, he's able to say, I am ready to not only be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. There's an application here for us. Persecution and trouble and suffering are God's tool to ready Paul for this moment. God uses these things. He puts Paul through these furnaces as instruments to shape him. So the troubles drive him to the heart of God to seek him in prayer. 
Are you in trouble right now? Even as we speak? Maybe it's health trouble. Maybe it's family trouble. Maybe it's work trouble. Maybe it is very, very difficult to be you right now. Might it be that God intends to strengthen you through prayer like he does with Paul here? Might it be that God is taking away every single avenue that you yourself could personally pursue so that you are left unarmed against your troubles and the only thing you have left is to get on your knees and pray? How are you answering your troubles? Are you, are you turning inward? Are you looking to your own strength? Are you looking to yourself to find out whether you are enough to handle this trouble? Are you assuming that if you just think hard enough and you just work through all the scenarios and all the problems in your head that you're going to be able to figure a way out of it? Whenever sickness strikes, whenever persecution happens, whenever suffering comes, and it will, These are all opportunities to declare our helplessness before our God by praying. It's prayer that brings you into the presence of God. It's prayer that reminds us that we are more than whether our bodies live or die. Paul experiences that prayerful strengthening here. Now, we may not be in the precise situation that Paul is in. We may not be directly told by God, go to this particular city and prepare to be arrested and be prepared to suffer. But the truth is, the Bible's full of warnings like this for Christians. You know, he gave Paul those warnings to make him ready. What will you do with his warnings? All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. What are you going to do with that warning? A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, says Jesus, they will also persecute you. What do you do with these warnings? Will you ignore them? Assume they're for someone else? Hope you never run into trouble? Or will you let God shape and make you ready? Let's respond like Paul does. Let's take the warning seriously. Let's pray. But then let's be prayerfully resolved. I am ready to be imprisoned and even to die for the name of the Lord Jesus. God uses our experiences to prepare us. He uses our sorrows and our tears to ready us. He uses all the losses and all of the crosses in this life to make us disciples who know how to say, I'm ready to go to prison. I'm ready to die. I'm ready to take a back seat. I'm ready to give up my plans so that my life is all about God and what he has ahead for me. Let's pray. Lord, we are easily discouraged by suffering and hurt. We are easily blown over by danger and trouble. Lord, help us to see the ways that you are toughening us up and using our experiences today to fortify us for the day of trouble when it comes. Help us to see that ultimately we may disagree with other Christians about how to apply what you've told us, but there is no mistaking what you have said. I will never leave you or forsake you. I will be with you always. Help us to remember it, Lord. In Christ's name we pray.